Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. So this is our last message in our series called Short and Sweet, a little story that reminds us that God cares, sustains, and provides. And the title of the message today is The Guiding Hand of God. The Guiding Hand of God. Now, when I was playing uh, football, something we'd hear all the time was, you play how you practice. You play how you practice. You play how you practice. Our coaches said that all the time. Then when I got into church world, what I heard all the time was, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You just hear it sort of everywhere. And sometimes it can kind of get old or whatever it is. But the reason why you hear it all the time is because it's true. I want to show you Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, his, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in control, does everything he wants. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Job 42, I know that you can do all things, Job says. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job's like, you can't stop God. So the, the Bible, from all the way from, from Old Testament to New, tells you that God is in control. And that's something that you, you, you can't get tired of hearing. That God is in control. That should never get old on us. We should never, never tire of hearing that reality, especially in the times that we're living in, that God is in control. Now, the reason why I'm starting the sermon like this is because in this chapter, we get one last final demonstration of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. Here's the main, our big sort of takeaway today. This is, it's this. God is guiding his plan of redemption to completion. When you read Ruth 4 and when you consider everything that we've sort of gone through in the last five weeks or whatever, however long we've been doing this little book is that God is guiding his plan of redemption to completion. And here's my aim. Here's what I want us to sort of go away with in this. I want us to know that we are part of something big. That we are involved in a, in a very big story. That it's not that we are, we're just a part of something great that God is doing. And that should give us good perspective, again, with the times that we're living in. And then this, I also want us to know from this passage that God is always working behind the scenes. You're going to see that so clear, that God is always working for our good and for his glory. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, but now Boaz... 
had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. So remember, last week, Boaz says to Ruth, I'm going to go deal with the issue. There's this other guy. I'm going to go talk to him. So he goes up to the gate and he sits down and he's looking. So he's looking out. He's, he's looking for this guy and says, and behold, the redeemer whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So the gate in this culture was where people did meetings. They conducted legal business. This was where like, the courts happened. That's every, all those things went on at the gate in this culture. And then it says, behold. Now, I've said this before. When you see behold in a passage, it's God saying, pay attention. So it says, behold. This word here is hinna. It could be translated, and then. So the, the author is saying that something actually really uh, serious and sort of surprising is happening. And that's the, the function it plays here, that it's actually showing us surprise. So Boaz is like, whoa, I didn't think you'd show up that quick. So it's surprise. And then it's also speaking of sovereignty, that this is not an accident. And this, this, this word here, friend, in the Hebrew is poloni almoni. It means so-and-so. Talked about that last week. So Boaz knows this guy's name, but the author of the, the book doesn't really want us to know, and we're going to see why. So it's, it's, it's so-and-so. So the way I make sure, I have this real bad habit. You can ask him about it. Every night, and Zion's actually picked up this habit, but every night I go and I check and make sure every, every door in our house is locked. I just, I just do it. And so I, I, I know sometimes I'm afraid of getting robbed, but... That might be what's driving that. And so I just make sure every door is locked. Sometimes I do it twice. Now, the way I make sure every door in our house is locked before going to bed, God makes sure that this guy shows up. See, I told you that God is guiding his plan of redemption, and God advances his plan by bringing Mr. So-and-so. That's what he does here. He brings this guy. And so verse 2 says, and then, the, and then he took Ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz is now is seeking out the elders. He's saying, come, come. We're, he's getting the court in session. Verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to her, our relative Elimelech. So he tells him, one of our family members is doing something. So I thought I'd tell you. Of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And then he said, I will redeem it. So he's like, I like the sound of that. He's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm going, I'm going in on that deal. That sounds good to me. Now watch this. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. First he likes the deal, now he doesn't like the deal. He runs away from this the way people run away from a burning building. He's like, I'm getting as far away from this as possible. And he says, and he tells you why. Lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. That phrase, lest I impair my own 
inheritance, what he's talking about is he liked the sound of the deal until he heard about Ruth. So when he hears about Ruth, he changes his mind. Because what he knows is if he has a son with Ruth, that son will inherit some of his inheritance. And he's like, I'm not having that. So what you have here is a brother that's only thinking about himself. He is, he's, he's selfish. He is like night and day. He's being contrasted with Boaz. This is a man who thinks only of himself. What you know here is that he does not care about Ruth. And he does not care about the line of Elimelech. And that's his family. He is selfish. And I'm showing you this because I want us to know selfishness kills kindness. Now, if we, we should watch out for selfishness in our life. The moment we allow that to sort of come in, you, you watch. Kindness is going to be killed. Just think about Jesus. See, kindness has a cost. And Jesus is more, was more than willing to pay that cost. Kindness has a cost. And the followers of Jesus, do you know what we do? We embrace the cost. That's what it means to follow our Savior, to live like him. That we embrace the cost in order to be kind to the people in our life. But selfishness destroys kindness. In verse 7, it says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in, is, in Israel. So when the Redeemer said, to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. So he's like, buy it yourself. Now he opens the door and Boaz runs through it like Usain Bolt. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going through this. So he takes off his sandal. Then the people said, verse 9, to the elders and all the people, you are, then Boaz, sorry, said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, have, I have bought to be my wife. Now, I want you to listen to what Boaz says here, because what you're going to see is a man who is not thinking about himself. It's a, his statement, his words, just there's a flow of unselfishness that comes from it. Where am I here? It says, I've bought, uh, verse 10, I've bought to be my wife to, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witness this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. This, the text says that they exchanged, they, they took off their sandals and they, and they gave it to one another. Sounds kind of weird to us. But this was a symbolic way of this guy giving up his right of redemption. He's like, he, he said, I don't want to be the redeemer. And so he now gives Boaz the sandal. So he's giving up that right. And here's the thing. If he was to ever challenge this, Boaz has two things. He's got the sandals and he has witnesses. That's why he gathered them. Because if this, if this guy was to come back and say, you know what, I like changed my mind. I mean, he's already kind of proven that he's a bit of a suspect kind of character. 
So if he comes back and he says, I changed my mind, well, Boaz is like, no, bro, I got your shoes. And we have witnesses. And the witnesses say, the deal is done and the deal is done right. So Boaz, is a, this is a wise man. And so he organizes and he gets things together and he says, the deal is done and the deal is done right. Now, there's an application here for people, Christian men and women who are involved in business. Because it, Boaz shows you that if you're a businessman or a businesswoman, that it's good to be wise and strategic in how you do business. Notice, Boaz is real wise. First, he tells them she's selling property. But he didn't drop the Ruth thing right out the gate. Strategic. Maybe he knows something about the guy. Right? Maybe he knows this dude's a little fishy, and so I got to just kind of do it this way. But it's a very strategic, it's the same way if you're doing business. It's good to be wise and be strategic. But here's the other thing, though. You don't want to be so wise and so strategic that you sin because Boaz doesn't do that. So you want to do things the right way in business as well, out in the open, so that it pleases God, brings glory to his name. There's also an application for how believers handle money. Again, remember, Boaz is a a successful businessman. He's running a business. But you know what I noticed about Boaz? He has money. And so he doesn't spend it all in one place. So it's good when you're you're thinking about stewarding money. We need to handle it well. Like my one friend uh, Justin says, we need to handle our dollars well. We need to take care of the money. Steward it well. So that, here's why. So that when God puts an opportunity before you, you can make moves. Boaz is able to buy the land because he has money left over. He doesn't just spend it all in one place. And we're in a time right now where it's just a lot of people are spending and spending and spending. You need a gift. This person needs a gift. And the Bible says it's fine to be generous and to think and love the people in your life, but also to be wise and good stewards of the money that God has entrusted to you so that you have something left when opportunities come up. So Boaz shows that to us. Verse 11 again. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so they prayed. They prayed that the name of Boaz would be famous. And then they prayed that God would give children to Boaz and Ruth who would bless and build up the house of God. That this is, they lift their voices to God for these things. And then they mention Perez, who's an ancestor of Boaz, Kalos and Younger. He says, the third blessing invokes the case of Perez, the offspring of Tamar and Judah who in spite of the plots and schemes, you can read that story in in Genesis 38, of his father and mother proved to be a gracious blessing from God. This blessing subtly speaks to the parallel of Ruth and Tamar as non-Israelites included in the tribal delineation. So God is including the, the, the Gentiles in the thing that he is doing. Like the story of Boaz and Ruth, the story of Judah and Tamar is a story of family continuity achieved by the determination of a woman. Though the story of Boaz and Ruth is 
also a tremendous contrast. Not, when you read them, there's a drastic contrast there to the tale of Judah and Tamar. What this tells us is that God uses the good, the bad, and the ugly all to advance his plan. In his sovereignty, he works to advance the thing that he is doing in the world. The elders were on a call this week with a couple, and the, the wife on the call kept saying, prayer is powerful, prayer is powerful, prayer is powerful, prayer is powerful. Because God answered prayer in their life. And every time she said it, I'm like, yep, yeah, girl, you're right. Prayer is powerful. So they prayed, and God answered. You're like, how do you know? The text, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and, let me turn my page, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. God advances his plan by giving a son. God advances his plan by giving a son to them. you got to understand this. Ruth, I haven't said this before, but it's actually pretty clear in this story that Ruth has been barren for 10 years. She was married, no kids. But here we see God opening her womb. And God's done this before in the story of redemption. Sarah did it for her. Rachel did it for her. Leah, Hannah, she, Hannah prayed and God blessed her with a child. And every time God did it, you know what he's doing? He was moving his plan forward sovereignly, working and guiding his plan in history every time. And this teaches us something. It teaches us to never doubt the power of God in your life. Our God is a God of supernatural power. And the moment that we, we fall on our knees and pray and, and ask God to help and to work, what you are doing is you are inviting the power of God to flow in your life. That's what's going on in prayer. Our God is a God of supernatural power. Here's the other thing it teaches us. That women have played a big role in God's plan of redemption. That's a, that's a crucial thing the text is saying. That women have played a vital role. I've given you some Old Testament examples. Let me give you some New Testament ones. Elizabeth. No child. Praying for a child. Pastor Yogi mentioned that earlier in the week when we were, when we were him and I were talking. God blesses, gives her a child. There's Mary. Think about Mary. I, Mary to me is one of, like, she's one of my favorite ladies in the Bible. Because I'm not, she is full of courage. I've said this before, the, the angel shows up and he's like, you thought your life was going that way, but your life is going this way. And what does she do? She looks at them and says, I'm a servant of the Lord. And God works through her. Think about the, the women who, who ministered to Jesus and supported his ministry. And what we are to do when we think through the, the way God has used so many women in his plan of redemption is we give thanks for these women. And we praise God for the work that he has done in their life, the way he's used them, and we've been blessed through that. Now, all the focus of the story shifts to Naomi. I, I was saying to somebody uh, that 
works in our office. I was like, I think, you know, it's called the book of Ruth, but I'm like, I think it should be called the book of Naomi. Because when you look at the, the level of focus and attention, like, Ruth, don't get me wrong, I'm not slighting Ruth. But now all of the focus shifts to Naomi. And the focus shows this big contrast that I don't want us to miss. I'm going to put it up on the screen. So you got to remember what Naomi said about herself. When she came back, chapter 1, she said, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. She's like, call me bitter. Remember she comes home, she's like, I want a new name. Don't call me that name. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So this is what she says. Now look at what the ladies say. Then the woman said to Naomi, this is chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. They praise God who has not left you with a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. They'd say something totally different than what she says. And what does it teach us? That God never abandoned Naomi. That when she comes back, in her pain, her perspective is lost. That he has not abandoned her. That God is a faithful provider. They say right in the text, he gave you this. He gave you a redeemer. Think about our life. He has given us a redeemer. God is a provider. And that God is going to bless her through Obed. We'll find out that, that his name, that's his name. He's going to bless her. And that the Lord is worthy of all praise. That's what it teaches us. They praise God. That's why when somebody says God's good, you are to say all the time. That was a regular phrase at my church growing up. I used to say it and I wasn't even a Christian. All the time, God is good. He's been good to her in all, all of these moments. And then they tell her the value of Ruth. Don't miss this. They say, your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Now, that phrase doesn't hit us the way it would have hit in that time. Because boys, babe, having boys was the whole deal. The, in, a, in a male-dominated society, the value that were placed on boys was massive. And so when they look at her and they say, Ruth is actually more valuable than seven sons, seven being like the perfect number. They're saying something massive to her. And why is Ruth so valuable? Because Ruth reminds us that love wears work clothes. Because Ruth didn't just look at Naomi and say, I love you. She looked at her and she said, I love you, and then she showed it. Love wears work clothes. It's a good example for us. It's not enough for you to just look at people and be like, I love you. It's so easy. And sometimes we say, I love you to people because we just want them to say, I love you back. It's not enough just to say, I love you. You have to then actually put it in action. Love wears work clothes. In verse 16, says, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. What you have here is this picture of a fulfilled grandma. 
joyful. Just think about how beautiful that picture is. I remember the first, when we had Zai, uh, he was born at Mississauga Hospital, and, and my mom came in, and I just, my mom, some of you guys know this, my mom's had cancer since I was, mm, I don't know, 14. And there was a, a real sort of time in my life, probably around 16, 17, where I'm like, I don't know if my mom will be here by the time I'm 20. And so when my mom rolled in and she brought some jerk chicken and rice and peas because we were hungry, and, and she took Zai, and she just, and she just sat in that one of the, you know those uncomfortable, you know, hospital chairs that they give to dad? She just sat in, and she just stared, and I, we just watched, she just stared at him for a, a long time. And I'm, I know for a fact, my mom was sitting there that day saying, like, I don't know if I would have, that day would have come. Zai was the, the first grandbaby in our, in our family. And I just remember looking at her and just think, and seeing the, 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 the joy, the sort of the rest that almost came over her. And that's the kind of picture you get here of Naomi, just fulfilled, this, this rest that comes over her. She has gone from being empty to being full. That's, that's this picture that is being shown here. And the name, the name Obed is so important. You know what it means? Provider means guardian. See, Obed, his name reflects the character of God. That God is this guardian of his people. That God is this faithful provider. His name reflects what God has done for his grandma. That God is a provider, that he is faithful. And then the book ends with a genealogy. Wait, I want to finish reading. Then the women sorry, verse 17, of the neighborhood, gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Again, that's so interesting. They don't say a son has been born to Ruth and Boaz. They say a son has been born to Naomi. Remember, see why I told you? I'm like, I feel like this book's kind of about her. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Again, so the book ends with a genealogy. It says, now these are generations of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadad. Abinadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Now, sometimes we ignore genealogies, like how we ignore phone calls and people handing out flyers on the side of the road, but we shouldn't ignore genealogies. They're actually really important. And there's something that's really important in this genealogy, that, and I hope you saw it, but we're told two times who fathered David. Did you catch that? It says it in verse 17, and it says it in verse 22. And Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, what this does is it actually gets to the central theme of the book. Gets to the central theme of the book, what God has actually been working towards. So I want to show you this. Because remember, the whole thing I'm trying to get into our minds today is that God is guiding this plan. That God is guiding things to a certain destination. So think back to all that we've covered. God brings back Naomi and Ruth. He brings them home. They hear that God has visited his people, given bread, and so they come home. 
And then God orchestrates the meeting of Ruth and Boaz. So he makes sure that Ruth happens upon the field of Boaz, and then he makes sure that Boaz happens to come. Remember that word behold was there again? And then God works through the initiative of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. We're seeing Boaz's initiative in this chapter to make sure that they get married. And then God graciously grants them a child. So what does this tell you? Here's what it tells you in three, these three. Because of the guiding hand of God, we get Obed, we get Jesse, and we get David. All because of what God started in chapter one. That seems so small. Like seemed that like they were just coming home. But he guides us. And here's the thing. The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy, but the gospel of Matthew starts with one. Because this royal line, this royal line that God's been preserving, it runs all the way to the New Testament. Matthew 1.1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is what God has been doing. This big, that's what I'm saying. We're into something way bigger than sometimes we realize. But God has been working through the life of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. Why? To bring about the birth of his son. That is what God has been doing. And this, there's a word in chapter 4 that's used over and over. You go home, you read it slowly. It's the word redeem or redeemer. Happens 13 times, I think. I counted, but I may have missed some because I was getting a little tired. But it's over and over and over. And you know what this does? This word, it speaks of what Jesus came to do. Listen to Titus. It says, for, and I, I, I'm, when, I, when the Holy Spirit reminded me of this passage, I was like, yes! But it says, the grace of God has appeared. What's that? Incarnation. We've been singing about that. The grace of God appears. What's the grace of God? Jesus Christ appeared. Yes. Bringing salvation for all people. What does that tell you? That the door is now open for Jews and Gentiles. That God is able to save people from all types of people. And that the unbeliever hearing needs to hear that. That there is a redeemer who has appeared, who can save you if you turn and trust in Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel, that the door is open, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So Jesus doesn't just save us, he also wants to change the way we live. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. We have a hope. We're waiting on him, and he is coming again. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, what? To redeem us, see the word? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Christmas is a time that should actually remind us that God's plan of redemption started years ago. And that that plan of redemption is carrying out today. 
that, the, that at the appearing of Jesus Christ, that the door was open for many people to be redeemed. And as we hear and sit and listen as God's redeemed people, what we have to understand is that now we actually have a part to play. So yes, we're in a big story, but we have a part to play now in the story. As redeemed people, you know what we do? We tell other people about the Redeemer. That's what we do. We tell people that Jesus has come, that our God, as the song said, such a good song, that our God has been made low, that he humbled himself, that the way you see Boaz not thinking about himself, even when he's talking about what it means for him to marry Ruth, that he's actually going to carry on the name of those who have passed on, that as Boaz is not thinking about himself, Jesus wasn't thinking about himself. He considered our interests. And humbled himself, God made low, became a baby, but it was a baby who was born to die. And he willingly died. But again, you read scripture all the way through. Sometimes at Christmas I feel like we tell half the story. But that he was raised. That he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that he will return to make all things new and right. I want to land this plane now. See, the book of Ruth, what it's telling us is that God has been working behind the scenes the whole time. That there's never a moment where God isn't working. What you need to understand, if you've ever been like, why is the book of Ruth in the Bible? Is it just like a real nice romantic story about how a, a man and a woman come together? Is that the purpose? Is, is that what it is? Is it just about a bunch of people being kind to one another? Why is it there? Well, let me tell you why it's there. The book of Ruth is in the Bible because the book of Ruth actually plays a very crucial part in the story of redemption. That's a vital spot that it plays in what God is doing. You have these little people who are going about, they're not little, but you have these people who are going about their, their life and God's working through their life. And they don't even really know it. Do you think that when Naomi's sitting there holding the baby, she knows what all of that means? No. But there is God working powerfully, doing his thing, guiding his plan of redemption. Why? So the door of salvation could be open to us. All of that God is doing. And you gotta think about when this is happening. You gotta think about the context. Again, context is so important because it helps us so well to understand the Bible. This is all happening in the days of the judges. Chapter one, verse one. In the day of the judges. Do you know what that time was like? It said, in the day of the judges, there was no king in the land. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The day of the judges was like a kid's play place full of kids with no parents and no staff. Chaos. Just things running wild, everyone doing what right, and, and in all of that chaos, in all of that mess, in all of that darkness, do you know what you, what's going on? God working, doing his thing. You can't stop the plan of God. Why? Because God is all powerful. We, we started the sermon with that. You can't thwart his plans. And why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I feel like we live in a time that feels like the days of the judges 
where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And yes, the time's dark. Yes, it feels hopeless. Yes, the news sometimes is really bad and it feels like it's only going to get worse. I hear people all the time like, I can't wait for 2020 to be over so 2021 can start. I'm like, does 2021 sound simple to you? Does it sound like 2021's gonna be all that clear? But in all of that, in all the mess, in all the darkness, do you know what's going on? God is guiding his plan of redemption. God is working. He is redeeming people. People are being saved. He is sustaining the saints. He, he is keeping us in the faith. And he's providing for us in ways that we don't even know, but we will see. And I want us to know that the way this story ends, notice how this story ends, with joy, with life, with fullness. That's how it ends. The way this story ends is the way our story will end. Joy, life, fullness, when the story is complete. We need to keep in our minds, yes, the times are tough, but we are into something way bigger than us. And God is working behind the scenes in ways we, if he was to tell us, our minds would be blown. God is guiding his plan of redemption to completion, and it will get completed, because he is good, because he is the provider. And so we can say, no matter the times, good days are up ahead, my people. Let's pray. Father, we, we bless your name, O Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe in a, in a very real, real way that even though we can't always see it, that you are working, even working through us, Lord, to bless others, to advance your plan in the world. We pray, Father, that in a time where I know people are struggling, I've talked to lots of people in our church who are struggling. Father, help us to find hope in this little story of the beautiful and powerful thing that you were doing in a time that felt so dark and that felt so hopeless. Help us, Lord God, not to lose hope, but to be full of faith, to trust you, Lord, that you are guiding your plan, that you will complete your plan. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our redemption, who was Emmanuel with us, and yes, Jesus is on the throne now, but one of the things he promised was that the, the helper, the Holy Spirit would come and be with us. And so we believe and know the Spirit is with us. Help us, Lord, to depend on your Spirit as we wait, Lord God, on you to complete the plan. Give us hope, give us faith, we pray in Jesus' name. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.